Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Chapter 16. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Edited by Frank Woodworth Pine. Chapter 16. Braddock's Expedition. The British government, not choosing to permit the union of the colonies as proposed at Albany, and to trust that union with their defense, lest they should thereby grow too military, and feel their own strength, suspicions and jealousies at this time being entertained of them, sent over General Braddock with two regiments of regular English troops for that purpose. He landed at Alexandria in Virginia, and thence marched to Fredericktown in Maryland, where he halted for carriages, our assembly apprehending, from some information, that he had conceived violent prejudices against them, as averse to the service wished me to wait upon him, as from them, but as postmaster-general, under the guise of proposing to settle with him the mode of conducting with most celerity and certainty the dispatches between him and the government of the several provinces, with whom he must necessarily have continual correspondence, and of which they supposed to pay the expense. My son accompanied me on this journey. We found the general at Fredericktown, waiting impatiently for the return of those he had sent through the back parts of Maryland and Virginia to collect wagons. I stayed with him several days, dined with him daily, and had full opportunity of removing all his prejudices by the information of what the assembly had before his arrival actually done, and were still willing to do, to facilitate his operations. When I was about to depart, the returns of wagons to be obtained were brought in, by which it appeared that they amounted only to twenty-five, and not all of those were in serviceable condition. The general and all the officers were surprised, declared the expedition was then at an end, being impossible, and exclaimed against the ministers for ignorantly landing them in a country destitute of the means of conveying their stores, baggage, etc., not less than one hundred and fifty wagons being necessary. I happened to say I thought it was pity they had not been landed rather in Pennsylvania, as in that country almost every farmer had his wagon. The general eagerly laid hold of my words and said, Then you, sir, who are a man of interest there, can probably procure them for us, and I beg you will undertake it. I asked what terms were to be offered the owners of the wagons, and I was desired to put on paper the terms that appeared to me necessary. This I did, and they were agreed to, and a commission and instructions accordingly prepared immediately. What those terms were will appear in the advertisement I published as soon as I arrived at Lancaster, which being, from the great and sudden effect it produced, a piece of some curiosity, I shall insert it at length as follows. Advertisement. Lancaster, April 26, 
1755, whereas one hundred and fifty wagons, with four horses to each wagon, and fifteen hundred saddle or pack horses are wanted for the service of His Majesty's forces, now about to rendezvous at Will's Creek, and His Excellency General Braddock, having been pleased to empower me to contract for the hire of the same, I hereby give notice that I shall attend for that purpose at Lancaster from this day to next Wednesday evening, and at York from next Thursday morning till Friday evening, where I shall be ready to agree for wagons and teams, or single horses, on the following terms. Fees. 1. That there shall be paid for each wagon, with four good horses and a driver, fifteen shillings per diem, and for each able horse, with a pack saddle or other saddle and furniture, two shillings per diem, and for each able horse, without a saddle, eighteen pence per diem. 2. That the pay commence from the time of their joining the forces at Will's Creek, which must be on or before the twenty-ninth of May, ensuing, and that a reasonable allowance be paid over and above for the time necessary for their travelling to Will's Creek and home again after their discharge. 3. Each wagon and team, and every saddle or pack-horse, is to be valued by indifferent persons, chosen between me and the owner, and in case of the loss of any wagons, team, or other horse in the service, the price accordingly to such valuation is to be allowed and paid. 4. Seven days' pay is to be advanced and paid in hand by me to the owner of each wagon and team, or horse, at the time of contracting, if required, and the remainder to be paid by General Braddock, or by the paymaster of the army, at the time of their discharge, or from time to time, as it shall be demanded. 5. No drivers of wagons or persons taking care of the hired horses are on any account to be called upon to do the duty of soldiers, or to be otherwise employed than in conducting or taking care of their carriages or horses. 6. All oats, Indian corn, or other forage that wagons or horses bring to the camp more than is necessary for the subsistence of the horses, is to be taken for the use of the army, and a reasonable price paid for the same. Note, my son, William Franklin, is empowered to enter into like contracts with any person in Cumberland County. B. Franklin. To the inhabitants of the counties of Lancaster, York, and Cumberland, friends and countrymen, being occasionally at the camp of Frederick a few days since, I found the general and officers extremely exasperated on account of their not being supplied with horses and carriages which had been expected from this province, as most able to furnish them. But, though the dissensions between our governor and assembly, money had not been provided, nor any steps taken for that purpose. It was proposed to send an armed force immediately into these counties, to seize as many of the best carriages and horses as should be wanted, and compel as many persons into the service as would be necessary to drive and take care of them. I apprehended that the progress of British soldiers through these counties, on such an occasion, especially considering the temper they are in, and their resentment against us, would be attended with many and great inconveniences to the inhabitants, and therefore more willingly took the trouble of trying first what might be done by fair and equitable means. 
the people of these back countries have lately complained to the assembly that a sufficient currency was wanting you have an opportunity of receiving and dividing among you a very considerable sum for if the service of this expedition should continue as it is more than probable it will for one hundred and twenty days the hire of these wagons and horses will amount to upward of thirty thousand pounds which will be paid to you in silver and gold of the king's money the service will be light and easy for the army will scarce march above twelve miles per day and the wagons and baggage horses as they carry those things that are absolutely necessary for the welfare of the army must march with the army and no faster and are for the army's sake always placed where they can be most secure whether in a march or in a camp if you are really as i believe you are good and loyal subjects to his majesty you may now do a most acceptable service and make it easy for yourselves for three or four of such as cannot separately spare from the business of their plantations a wagon and four horses and a driver may do it together one furnishing the wagon another one or two horses and another the driver and divide the pay proportionally between you but if you do not this service to your king and country voluntarily when such good pay and reasonable terms are offered you your loyalty will be strongly suspected the king's business must be done so many brave troops come so far for your defence must not stand idle through your backwardness to do what may be reasonably expected from you wagons and horses must be had violent measures will probably be used and you will be left to seek for recompense where you can find it and your case perhaps be little pitied or regarded i have no particular interest in this affair as except the satisfaction of endeavouring to do good i shall have only my labour for my pains if this method of obtaining the wagons and horses is not likely to succeed i am obliged to send word to the general in fourteen days and i suppose sir john st clair the hussar with a body of soldiers will immediately enter the province for the purpose which i shall be sorry to hear because i am very sincerely and truly your friend and well-wisher b franklin i received of the general about eight hundred pounds to be dispersed in advance money to the wagon owners etc but the sum being insufficient i advanced upward of two hundred pounds more and in two weeks the one hundred and fifty wagons with two hundred and fifty-nine carriage horses were on the march for the camp the advertisement promised payment according to the valuation in case any wagon or horse should be lost the owners however alleging they did not know general braddock or what dependence might be had on his promise insisted on my bond for the performance which i accordingly gave them while i was at the camp supping one evening with the officers of colonel dunbar's regiment he represented to me his concern for the subalterns who he said were generally not in affluence and could ill afford in this dear country to lay in the stores that might be necessary for so long a march through a wilderness where nothing was to be purchased i commiserated their care and resolved to endeavour procuring them some relief i said nothing however to him of my intention but wrote the next morning to the committee of the assembly who had the disposition of some public money warmly recommending the case of these officers to their consideration and proposing that a present should be sent them of necessaries and refreshments 
my son who had some experience of a camp life and of its wants drew up a list for me which i enclosed in my letter the committee approved and used such diligence that conducted by my son the stores arrived at the camp as soon as the wagons they consisted of twenty parcels each containing six pounds of sugar-loaf six pounds of good muscovado one pound good green tea one pound good bohiadu six pounds loaf sugar six pounds good muscovado one pound good green tea one pound good bohi six pounds good ground coffee six pounds chocolate one to two hundred weight best white biscuit one to two pounds pepper one quart best white wine vinegar one gloucester cheese one cake containing twenty pounds good butter two dozen old madeira wine two gallons jamaican spirits one bottle flour of mustard two well-cured hams one to two dozen dried tongues six pounds rice six pounds of raisins these twenty parcels well packed were placed on as many horses each parcel with the horse being intended as a present for one officer they were very thankfully received and the kindness acknowledged by letters to me from the colonels of both regiments in the most grateful terms the general too was highly satisfied with my conduct in procuring him the wagons etc and readily paid my account of disbursements thanking me repeatedly and requesting my further assistance in sending provisions after him i undertook this also and was busily employed in it till we heard of his defeat advancing for the service of my own money upwards of one thousand pounds sterling of which i sent him an account it came to his hands luckily for me a few days before the battle and he returned me immediately an order on the paymaster for the round sum of one thousand pounds leaving the remainder to the next account i considered this payment as good luck having never been able to obtain that remainder of which more hereafter the general was i think a brave man and might probably have made a figure as a good officer in some european war but he had too much self-confidence too high an opinion of the validity of regular troops and too mean a one of both americans and indians george croen our indian interpreter joined him on his march with one hundred of those people who might have been of great use to his army as guides scouts etc if he had treated them kindly but he slighted and neglected them and they gradually left him in conversation with him one day he was giving me some account of his intended progress after taking fort duquesne says he i am to proceed to niagara and having taken that to fontenac if the season will allow me and i suppose it will for duquesne can hardly detain me above three or four days and i see nothing that can obstruct my march to niagara having before revolved in my mind the long line his army must take in the march by a very narrow road to be cut for them through the woods and bushes and also what i had read of a former defeat of fifteen hundred french who invaded the iroquois country i had conceived some doubts and some fears for the event of the campaign but i ventured only to say to be sure sir if you arrive well before duquesne with these fine troops so well provided with artillery that place not yet completely fortified and as we hear with no very strong garrison can probably make but a short resistance 
the only danger i apprehend of obstruction to your march is from ambuscades of indians who by constant practice are dexterous in laying and executing them and the slender line near four miles long which your army must make may expose it to be attacked by surprise in its flanks and to be cut like a thread into several pieces which from their distance cannot come up in time to support each other he smiled at my ignorance and replied these savages may indeed be a formidable enemy to your raw american militia but upon the king's regular and disciplined troops sir it is impossible they should make any impression i was conscious of an impropriety in my disputing with a military man in matters of his profession and said no more the enemy however did not take the advantage of his army which i apprehended its long line of march exposed it to but let it advance without interruption till within nine miles of the place and then when more in a body for it had just passed river where the front had halted till all were come over and in a more open part of the woods than any it had passed attacked its advanced guard by heavy fire from behind trees and bushes which was the first intelligence the general had of an enemy's being near him this guard being disordered the general hurried his troops up to their assistance which was done in great confusion though wagons baggage and cattle and presently the fire came upon their flank the officers being on horseback were more easily distinguished picked out as marks and fell very fast and the soldiers were crowded together in a huddle having or hearing no orders and standing to be shot at till two-thirds of them were killed and then being seized with a panic the whole fled with precipitation the wagoners took each horse out of its team and scampered their example was immediately followed by others so that all the wagons provisions artillery and stores were left to the enemy the general being wounded was brought off with difficulty his secretary mr shirley was killed by his side and out of eighty-six officers sixty-three were killed or wounded and seven hundred and fourteen men killed out of the eleven hundred these eleven hundred had been picked men from the whole army the rest had been left behind with colonel dunbar who was to follow with the heavier part of the stores provisions and baggage the flyers not being pursued arrived at dunbar's camp and the panic they brought with them instantly seized him and all his people and though he had now above one thousand men and the enemy who had beaten braddock did not at most exceed four hundred indians and french together instead of proceeding and endeavouring to recover some of the lost honour he ordered all the stores ammunition etc to be destroyed that he might have more horses to assist his flight towards the settlements and less lumber to remove he was there met with requests from the governors of virginia maryland and pennsylvania that he should post his troops on the frontier so as to afford some protection to the inhabitants but he continued his hasty march through all the country not thinking himself safe till he arrived at philadelphia where the inhabitants could protect him this whole transaction gave us americans the first suspicion that our exalted ideas of the power of british regulars had not been well founded begin footnote other accounts of this expedition and defeat may be found in fisk's washington and his country or lodges george washington volume one End footnote. in the first march too from their landing till they got beyond the settlements 
they had plundered and stripped the inhabitants, totally ruining some poor families. Besides insulting, abusing, and confining the people if they remonstrated, this was enough to put us out of conceit of such defenders, if we had really wanted any. How different was the conduct of our French friends in 1781, who, during a march through the most inhabited part of our country, from Rhode Island to Virginia, near seven hundred miles, occasioned not the smallest complaint for the loss of a pig, a chicken, or even an apple. Captain Ormy, who was one of the general's aides-de-camp, and, being grievously wounded, was brought off with him, and continued with him to his death, which happened in a few days, told me that he was totally silent all the first day, and at night only said, who would have thought it, that he was silent again the following day, saying only at last, we shall better know how to deal with them another time, and died in a few minutes after. The secretary's papers, with all the general's orders, instructions, and correspondence, falling into the enemy's hands, they selected and translated into French a number of articles which they printed to prove the hostile intentions of the British court before the declaration of war. Among these I saw some letters of the general to the ministry, speaking highly of the great service I had rendered the army, and recommending me to their notice. David Hume, too, who was some years after secretary to Lord Hertford, then minister to France, and afterward to General Conway, when secretary of state, told me he had seen among the papers in that office letters from Braddock highly recommending me. But the expedition having been unfortunate, my service, it seems, was not thought of much value, for those recommendations were never of any use to me. As to rewards for myself, I asked only one, which was that he would give orders to his officers not to enlist any more of our bought servants, and that he would discharge such as had been already enlisted. This he readily granted, and several were accordingly returned to their masters, on my application. Dunbar, when the command devolved on him, was not so generous. He being at Philadelphia on his retreat, or rather flight, I applied to him for the discharge of the servants of three poor farmers in Lancaster County that he had enlisted, reminding him of the late general's orders on that head. He promised me that, if the masters would come to him at Trenton, where he should be in a few days on his march to new york he would there deliver their men to them they accordingly were at the expense and trouble of going to trenton and there he refused to perform his promise to their great loss and disappointment as soon as the loss of the wagons and horses was generally known all the owners came upon me for the valuation which i had given bond to pay their demands gave me a great deal of trouble by acquainting them that the money was ready in the paymaster's hands, but that orders for paying it must first be obtained from General Shirley, and by assuring them that I had applied to that general by letter. But he being at a distance, an answer could not soon be received, and they must have patience. All this was not sufficient to satisfy, and some began to sue me. General Shirley at length relieved me from this terrible situation, by appointing commissioners to examine the claims, and ordering payment. They amounted to near twenty thousand pounds, which to pay would have ruined me. Before we had the news of this defeat, the two doctors' bond came to me with a subscription paper for raising money to defray the expense of a grand firework, which it was intended to exhibit at a rejoicing 
on receipt of the news of our taking Fort Duquesne. I looked grave, and said it would, I thought, be time enough to prepare for the rejoicing, when we knew we should have occasion to rejoice. They seemed surprised that I did not immediately comply with their approval. Why the devil, says one of them, you surely don't suppose that the fort will not be taken. I don't know that it will not be taken, but I know that the events of war are subject to great uncertainty. I gave them the reasons of my doubting, the subscription was dropped, and the projectors thereby missed the mortification they would have undergone if the firework had been prepared. Dr. Bond, on some other occasion afterward, said that he did not like Franklin's forebodings. Governor Morris, who had continually worried the assembly with message after message before the defeat of Braddock, to beat them into the making of acts to raise money for the defense of the province, without taxing, among others, the proprietary estates, and had rejected all their bills for not having such an exempting clause, now redoubled his attacks with more hope of success, the danger and necessity being greater. The assembly, however, continued firm, believing they had justice on their side, and that it would be giving up an essential right if they suffered the governor to amend their money bills. In one of the last, indeed, which was for granting fifty thousand pounds, his proposed amendment was only of a single word. The bill expressed that all estates real and personal were to be taxed, those of the proprietaries not excepted. His amendment was for not, read only, a small but very material alteration. However, when the news of this disaster reached England, our friends there, whom we had taken care to furnish with all the assembly's answers to the governor's messages, raised a clamor against the proprietaries for their meanness and injustice in giving their governor such instructions, some going so far as to say that, by obstructing the defense of their province, they forfeited their right to it. They were intimidated by this, and sent orders to their receiver-general to add five thousand pounds of their money to whatever sum might be given by the assembly for such purpose. This being notified to the House was accepted in lieu of their share of a general tax, and a new bill was formed with an exempting clause, which passed accordingly. But by this act I was appointed one of the commissioners for disposing of the money, sixty thousand pounds. I had been active in modelling the bill and procuring its passage, and had at the same time drawn a bill for establishing and disciplining a volunteer militia, which I carried through the house without much difficulty, as care was taken in it to leave the Quakers at their liberty. To promote the association necessary to form the militia, I wrote a dialogue, stating and answering all the objections I could think of for such a militia, which was printed and had, as I thought, great effect. End of chapter 16「The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin – Chapter 17 – This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, edited by Frank Woodworth Pine. Chapter 17 Franklin's Defense of the Frontier While the several companies in the city and country were forming and learning their exercise, the governor prevailed with me to take charge of our northwestern frontier, which was infested by the enemy, 
and provide for the defence of the inhabitants by raising troops and building a line of forts. I undertook this military business, though I did not conceive myself well qualified for it. He gave me a commission with full powers, and a parcel of blank commissions for officers, to be given to whom I thought fit. I had but little difficulty in raising men, having soon five hundred and sixty under my command. My son, who had in the preceding war been an officer in the army, raised against Canada, was my aide-de-camp, and of great use to me. The Indians had burned Gnadenhut, a village settled by the Morovians, and massacred the inhabitants, but the place was thought a good situation for one of the forts. In order to march thither I assembled the companies at Bethlehem, the chief establishment of those people. I was surprised to find it in so good a posture of defence. The destruction of Gnadenhut had made them apprehend danger. The principal buildings were defended by a stockade. They had purchased a quantity of arms and ammunition from New York, and had even placed quantities of small paving-stones between the windows of their high stone houses, for their women to throw down upon the heads of any Indians that should attempt to force into them. The armed brethren, too, kept watch, and relieved as methodically as in any garrison town. In conversation with the bishop, Sprengenberg, I mentioned this my surprise, for, knowing they had obtained an act of Parliament, exempting them from military duties in the colonies, I had supposed they were conscientiously scrupulous of bearing arms. He answered me that it was not one of their established principles, but that at the time of their obtaining that act it was thought to be a principle with many of their people. On this occasion, however, they, to their surprise, found it adopted by but a few. It seems they were either deceived in themselves or deceived the Parliament, but common sense aided by present danger will sometimes be too strong for whimsical opinions. It was the beginning of January when we set out upon the business of building forts. I sent one detachment toward the Minisink, with instructions to erect one for the security of that upper part of the country, and another to the lower part, with similar instructions and I concluded to go myself, with the rest of my force, to Gnadenhut, where a fort was thought more immediately necessary. The Morovians procured me five wagons for our tools, stores, baggage, etc. Just before we left Bethlehem, eleven farmers, who had been driven from their plantations by the Indians, came to me requesting a supply of firearms, that they might go back and fetch off their cattle. I gave them each a gun with suitable ammunition. We had not marched many miles before it began to rain, and it continued raining all day. There were no habitations on the road to shelter us till we arrived near night at the house of a German, where, and in his barn, we were all huddled together as wet as water could make us. It was well we were not attacked in our march, for our arms were of the most ordinary sort, and our men could not keep their gun-locks dry. The Indians are dexterous in contrivances for that purpose, which we had not. They met that day the eleven poor farmers above mentioned, and killed ten of them. The one who escaped informed that his and his companion's guns would not go off, the priming being wet with the rain. Begin footnote. Flintlock guns, discharged by means of a spark struck from flint and steel into powder, priming, in an open pan. 
End footnote. The next day, being fair, we continued our march, and arrived at the desolate Gunadenhut. There was a sawmill near, round which were left several piles of boards, with which we soon hutted ourselves, an operation the more necessary at the inclement season, as we had no tents. Our first work was to bury more effectually the dead we found there, who were half interred by the country people. The next morning our fort was planned and marked out the circumference measuring four hundred and fifty-four feet, which would require as many palisades to be made of trees, one with another, of a foot diameter each. Our axes, of which we had seventy, were immediately set to work to cut down trees, and our men being dexterous in the use of them, great dispatch was made. Seeing the trees fall so fast, I had the curiosity to look at my watch, when two men began to cut at a pine. In six minutes they had it upon the ground, and I found it of fourteen inches diameter. Each pine made three palisades of eighteen feet long, pointed at one end. While these were prepared, our other men dug a trench all round, of three feet deep, in which the palisades were to be planted, and our wagons, the bodies taken off, and the fore and hind wheels separated by taking out the pin which united the two parts of the perch. We had ten carriages, with two horses each, to bring the palisades from the woods to the spot. When they were set up, our carpenters built a stage, of boards all round within, about six feet high, for the men to stand on, to fire through the loopholes. We had one swivel gun, which we mounted on one of the angles, and fired it as soon as fixed, to let the Indians know, if any were within hearing, that we had such pieces, and thus our fort, if such a magnificent name may be given to so miserable a stockade, was finished in a week, though it rained so hard every other day that the men could not work. This gave me occasion to observe that, when men are employed, they are best contented. For on the days they worked they were good-natured and cheerful, and with the conscientiousness of having done a good day's work they spent the evening jollily. But on our idle days they were mutinous and quarrelsome, finding fault with their pork, the bread, etc., and in continual ill-humour, which put me in mind of a sea-captain, whose rule it was to keep his men constantly at work, and when his mate once told him they had done everything, and there was nothing further to employ them about, oh, says he, make them scour the anchor. This kind of fort, however contemptible, is a sufficient defence against Indians who have no cannon. Finding ourselves now posted securely, and having a place to retreat to on occasion, we ventured out in parties to scour the adjacent country. We met with no Indians, but we found places on the neighbouring hills where they had lain to watch our proceedings. There was an art in their contrivance of those places that seemed worth mentioning. It being winter, a fire was necessary for them, but a common fire on the surface of the ground would by its light have discovered their positions at a distance. They had therefore dug holes in the ground around three feet diameter, and somewhat deeper. We saw where they had, with their hatches, cut off the charcoal from the sides of burnt logs lying in the woods. With these coals they made small fires in the bottoms of the holes, and we observed, among the weeds and grass, the prints of their bodies, made by their laying all round with their legs hanging down in the holes, to keep their feet warm, which, with them, is an essential point. 
This kind of fire, so managed, could not discover them, either by its light, flame, sparks, or even smoke. It appeared that their number was not great, and it seems they saw we were too many to be attacked by them with prospect of advantage. We had for our chaplain a zealous Presbyterian minister, Mr. Beatty, who complained to me that the men did not generally attend his prayers and exhortations. When they enlisted, they were promised, besides pay and provisions, a gill of rum a day, which was punctually served out to them half in the morning and the other half in the evening, and I observed they were punctual in attending to receive it, upon which I said to Mr. Beatty, it is perhaps below the dignity of your profession to act as steward of the rum, but if you were to deal it out, and only just after prayers, you would have them all about you. He liked the thought, undertook the office, and, with the help of a few hands to measure out the liquor, executed it to satisfaction, and never were prayers more generally and more punctually attended, so that I thought this method preferable to the punishment inflicted by some military laws for non-attendance on divine service. I had hardly finished this business, and got my fort well stored with provisions when I received a letter from the governor, acquainting me that he had called the assembly, and wished my attendance there, if the posture of affairs on the frontier was such that my remaining there was no longer necessary. My friends, too, of the assembly, pressing me by their letters to be, if possible, at the meeting, and my three intended forts now being completed, with the inhabitants contented to remain on their farms under that protection, I resolved to return the more willingly as a New England officer, Colonel Chapin, experienced in Indian war, being on visit to our establishment, consented to accept the command. I gave him a commission, and, parading the garrison, had it read before them, and introduced him to them as an officer who, by his skill in military affairs, was much more fit to command them than myself, and giving them a little exhortation, drew my leave. I was escorted as far as Bethlehem, where I rested a few days to recover from the fatigue I had undergone. The first night, being in a good bed, I could hardly sleep. It was so different from my hard lodgings on the floor of our hut at Ganagenhut, wrapped only in a blanket or two. While at Bethlehem I inquired a little into the practice of the Moravians. Some of them had accompanied me, and all were very kind to me. I found they worked for a common stock, ate at common tables, and slept in common dormitories, great numbers together. In the dormitories I observed loopholes at certain distances, all along just under the ceiling, which I thought judiciously placed, for change of air. I was at their church, where I was entertained with good music, the organs being accompanied with violins, hot-boys, flutes, clarinets, etc. I understood that their sermons were not usually preached to mixed congregations of men, women, and children, as is our common practice, but that they assembled sometimes the married men, at other times their wives, then the young men, the young women, and the little children, each division by itself. The sermon I heard was to the latter, who came in and were placed in rows on benches, the boys under the conduct of a young man, their tutor, and the girls conducted by a young woman. The discourse seemed well adapted to their capacities, and was delivered in a pleasing, familiar manner, coaxing them, as it were, to be good. They behaved very orderly, but looked pale and unhealthy, 
which made me suspect they were kept too much within doors and not allowed sufficient exercise i inquired concerning the moravian marriages whether the report was true that they were by lot i was told that lots were used only in particular cases that generally when a young man found himself disposed to marry he informed the elders of his class who consulted the elder ladies that governed the young women as these elders of the different sexes were well acquainted with the tempers and dispositions of their respective pupils they could best judge what matches were suitable and their judgments were generally acquiesced in but if for example it should happen that two or three young women were found to be equally proper for the young man the lot was then recurred to i objected if the matches are not made by the mutual choice of the parties some of them may chance to be very unhappy and so they may answered my informer if you let the partners choose for themselves which indeed i could not deny being returned to philadelphia i found the association went on swimmingly the inhabitants that were not quakers having pretty generally come into it formed themselves into companies and chose their captains lieutenants and ensigns according to the new law dr b visited me and gave me an account of the pains he had taken to spread a general good liking to the law and ascribed much of those endeavours i had had the vanity to ascribe all to my dialogue however not knowing but what he might be in the right i let him enjoy his opinion which i take to be generally the best way in such cases the officers meeting chose me to be colonel of the regiment which i this time accepted i forgot how many companies we had but we paraded around twelve hundred well-looking men with a company of artillery who had been furnished with six brass field pieces which they had become so expert in the use of as to fire twelve times in a minute the first time i reviewed my regiment they accompanied me to my house and would salute me with some rounds fired before my door which shook down and broke several glasses of my electrical apparatus and my new honour proved not much less brittle for all our commissions were soon after broken by a repeal of the law in england during the short time of my colonelship being about to set on a journey to virginia the officers of my regiment took it to their heads that it would be proper for them to escort me out of town as far as the lower ferry just as i was getting on horseback they came to my door between thirty and forty mounted and all in their uniforms i had not been previously acquainted with the project or i should have prevented it being naturally averse to the assuming of state on any occasion and i was a good deal chagrined at their appearance as i could not avoid their accompanying me what made it worse was that as soon as we began to move they drew their swords and rode with them naked all the way somebody wrote an account of this to the proprietor and it gave him great offence no such honour had been paid him when in the province nor to any of his governors and he said it was only proper to princes of the blood royal which may it be true for aught i know who was and still am ignorant of the etiquette of such cases this silly affair however increased the rancour against me which was before not a little on account of my conduct in the assembly respecting the exemption of his estates from taxation which i had always opposed very warmly and not without severe reflection on his meanness and injustice of contending for it he accused me to the ministry as being the great obstacle to the king's service preventing 
by my influence in the house the proper form of the bills for raising money and he insisted this parade with my officers as a proof of my having an intention to take the government of the province out of his hands by force he also applied to sir edward falconer the postmaster-general to deprive me of my office but it had no other effect than to procure from sir everard's a general admonition notwithstanding the continual wrangle between the governor and the house in which i as a member had so large a share there still subsisted a civil intercourse between the gentleman and myself and we never had any personal difference i have sometimes since thought that is little or no resentment against me for the answers it was known i drew up to his messages might be the effect of professional habit and that being bred a lawyer he might consider us both as merely advocates for contending clients in a suit he for the proprietaries and i for the assembly he would therefore sometimes call in a friendly way to advise with me on difficult points and sometimes though not often take my advice we acted in concert to supply braddock's army with provisions and when the shocking news arrived of his defeat the governor sent in haste for me to consult with him on measures for preventing the destruction of the back counties i forget now the advice i gave but i think it was that dunbar should be written to and prevailed with if possible to post his troops on the frontier for their protection till by reinforcements from the colonies he might be able to proceed on the expedition and after my return from the frontier he would have had me undertake the conduct of such an expedition with provincial troops for the reduction of fort duquesne dunbar and his men being otherwise employed and he proposed to commission me as general i had not so good an opinion of my military abilities as he professed to have and i believe his professions must have exceeded his real sentiments but probably he might think that my popularity would facilitate the raising of the men and my influence in the assembly the grant of money to pay for them and that perhaps without taxing the proprietary estates finding me not as forward to engage as he expected the project was dropped and he soon after left the government being superseded by captain denny end of chapter seventeen the autobiography of benjamin franklin chapter eighteen this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, edited by Frank Woodworth Pine. Chapter 18. Scientific Experiments. Before I proceed in relating the part I had in public affairs under the new governor's administration, it may not be amiss here to give some account of the rise and progress of my philosophical reputation in seventeen forty six being at boston i met there with a dr spence who was lately arrived from scotland and showed me some electric experiments they were imperfectly performed as he was not very expert but being on a subject quite new to me they equally surprised and pleased me soon after my return to philadelphia our library company received from mr p collinson fellow of the royal society of london a present of a glass tube with some account of the use of it in making such experiments i eagerly seized the opportunity of repeating what i had seen at boston 
and by such practice acquired great readiness in performing those, also, which we had an account of from England, adding a number of new ones. I say much practice, for my house was continually full, for some time, with people who came to see these new wonders. Begin footnote. The Royal Society of London for Improving Natural Knowledge was founded in 1660, and holds the foremost place among English societies for the advancement of science. End footnote. To divide a little of this encumbrance among my friends, I caused a number of similar tubes to be blown at our glass-house, with which they furnished themselves, so that we had at length several performers. Among these the principal was Mr. Kennesley, an ingenious neighbour, who, being out of business, I encouraged to undertake showing the experiments for money, and drew up for him two lectures, in which the experiments were ranged in such order, and accompanied with such explanations, in such method, as the foregoing should assist in comprehending the following. He procured an elegant apparatus for the purpose, in which all the little machines that I had roughly made for myself were nicely formed by instrument-makers. His lectures were well attended, and gave great satisfaction, and after some time he went through the colonies, exhibiting them in every capital town, and picked up some money. In the West Indies, indeed, it was with difficulty the experiments could be made from the general moisture of the air. Obliged as we were to Mr. Collinson for his present of the tube, etc., I thought it right he should be informed of our success in using it and wrote him several letters containing accounts of our experiments. He got them read at the Royal Society, where they were not at first thought worth so much notice as to be printed in their transactions. One paper, which I wrote for Mr. Kennesley, on the sameness of lightning with electricity, I sent to Dr. Mitchell, an acquaintance of mine, and one of the members also of that society, who wrote me word that it had been read, but was laughed at by the connoisseurs. The papers, however, being shown to Dr. Fothergill, he thought them of too much value to be stifled, and advised the printing of them. Mr. Collinson then gave them to Cave for publication in his gentleman's magazine, but he chose to print them separately in a pamphlet, and Dr. Fothergill wrote the preface. Cave, it seems, judged rightly for his profit, for by the additions that arrived afterwards they swelled to a quattro volume which has had five editions and cost him nothing for copy-money. It was, however, some time before those papers were much taken notice of in England, a copy of them happening to fall into the hands of the Count de Buffon, a philosopher deservedly of great reputation in France, and indeed all over Europe. He prevailed with Monsieur de to translate them into French, and they were printed at Paris. The publication offended the Abbe Nollet, preceptor of the natural philosophy to the royal family, and an able experimenter, who had formed and published a theory of electricity, which then had the general vogue. He could not at first believe that such a work came from America, and said it must have been fabricated by his enemies at Paris to decry his system. Afterwards, having been assured that there really existed such a person as Franklin at Philadelphia, which he had doubted, he wrote and published a volume of letters, chiefly addressed to me, defending his theory, and denying the verity of my experiments, and of the position deduced from them. I once proposed answering the Abbey, and actually began the answer, 
but on consideration that my writings contained a description of experiments which any one might repeat and verify, and if not to be verified could not be defeated, or of observations offered as conjectures and not delivered dogmatically, therefore not laying me under any obligation to defend them, and reflecting that a dispute between two persons writing in different languages might be lengthened greatly by mistranslations, and thence misconceptions of one another's meaning, much of one of the abbey's letters being founded on an error in the translation, I concluded to let my papers shift for themselves, believing it was better to spend what time I could spare from public business in making new experiments than in disputing about those already made. I therefore never answered M. Nollet, and the event gave me no cause to repeat my silence, for my friend M. Leroy of the Royal Academy of Sciences took up my cause and refuted him. My book was translated into Italian, German, and Latin languages, and the doctrine it contained was by degrees universally adopted by the philosophers of Europe, in preference to that of the Abbey, so that he lived to see himself the last of his sect, except M. B. of Paris, his immediate disciple. What gave my book the more sudden and general celebrity was the success of one of its proposed experiments, made by Messieurs Delabard and Delors at Marley, for drawing lightning from the clouds. This engaged the public attention everywhere. Monsieur Delors, who had an apparatus for experimental philosophy, and lectured at the branch of science, undertook to repeat what he called the Philadelphia experiments, and after they were performed before the king and court, all the curious of Paris flocked to see them. I will not swell this narrative with an account of that capital experiment, nor of the infinite pleasure I received in the process of a similar one I made soon after with a kite at Philadelphia, as both are to be found in the histories of electricity. Dr. Wright, an English physician, when at Paris, wrote to a friend who was of the Royal Society, an account of the high esteem my experiments were in among the learned abroad, and of their wonder that my writings had been so little noticed in England. The society on this resumed the consideration of the letters that had been read to them, and the celebrated Dr. Watson drew up a summary account of them, and of all I had afterwards sent to England on the subject, which he accompanied with some praise of the writer. This summary was then printed in the transactions, and some members of the society in London, particularly the very ingenious Mr. Canton, having verified the experiment of producing lightning from the clouds by a pointed rod, had acquainted them with the success. They soon made me more than amends for the slight with which they had before treated me. Without my having made any application for that honour, they chose me a member, and voted that I should be excused the customary payments, which would have amounted to twenty-five guineas, and ever since have given me their transactions gratis. They also presented me with the gold medal of Sir Godfrey Copley for the year 1753, the delivery of which was accompanied by a very handsome speech of the President, Lord Macclefield, where I was highly honoured. Begin footnote. Sir Godfrey Copley, an English baronet, died in 1709, donator of a fund of one hundred pounds, in trust for the Royal Society of London, 
for improving natural knowledge. End footnote. End of chapter 18. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Chapter 19. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Edited by Frank Woodward Payne. Chapter 19. An Agent of Pennsylvania in London. Our new governor, Captain Denny, brought over for me the before-mentioned medal from the Royal Society, which he presented to me at an entertainment given by the city. He accompanied it with very polite expressions of his esteem for me, having, as he said, been long acquainted with my character. After dinner, when the company, as was customary at that time, were engaged in drinking, he took me aside into another room and acquainted me that he had been advised by his friends in England to cultivate a friendship with me as one who was capable of giving him the best advice and of contributing most effectually to the making of his administration easy, that he therefore desired of all things to have a good understanding with me, and he begged me to be assured of his readiness on all occasions to render me every service that might be in his power. He said much to me, also, of the proprietor's good disposition towards the province, and of the advantage it might be to us all, and to me in particular, if the opposition that had been so long continued to his measures was dropped, and harmony restored between him and the people, in effecting which it was thought no one could be more serviceable than myself, and I might depend on adequate acknowledgments and recompenses, etc., etc., the drinkers, finding we did not return immediately to the table, sent us a decanter of Madeira, which the governor made liberal use of, and in proportion became more profuse of his solicitations and promises. My answers were to this purpose, that my circumstances, thanks to God, were such as to make proprietary favours unnecessary to me, and that being a member of the assembly, I could not possibly accept of any. That, however, I had no personal enmity to the proprietary, and that whatever the public measures he proposed should appear to be for the good of the people, no one should espouse and forward them more zealously than myself, my past opposition having been founded on this, that the measures which had been urged were evidently intended to serve the proprietary interest with great prejudice to that of the people, which I was much obliged to him, the governor, for his profession of regard to me, that he might rely on everything in my power to make his administration as easy as possible, hoping at the same time that he had not brought with him the same unfortunate instructions his predecessor had been hampered with. On this he did not then explain himself, but when he afterward came to do business with the assembly, they appeared again, the disputes were renewed, and I was as active as ever in the opposition being the penman first of the request to have a communication of the instructions and then of the remarks upon them which may be found in the votes of the time and in the historical review i afterward published 
but between us personally no enmity arose we were often together he was a man of letters had seen much of the world and was very entertaining and pleasing in conversation he gave me the first information that my old friend jason randolph was still alive that he was esteemed one of the best political writers in england and been employed in the dispute between prince frederick and the king and had obtained a pension of three hundred a year that his reputation was indeed small as a poet pope having damned his poetry in the duncanade but his prose was thought as good as any man's begin footnote quarrel between george the second and his son frederick prince of wales who died before his father a satirical poem by alexander pope directed against various contemporary writers End of footnote the assembly finally finding the proprietary obstinately persistent in menacing their deputies and with instructions inconsistent not only with the privileges of the people but with the service of the crown resolved to petition the king against them and appointed me their agent to go over to england to present and support the petition the house had set up a bill to the governor granting a sum of sixty thousand pounds for the king's use ten thousand pounds of which was subject to the orders of the then general lord laudan which the governor absolutely refused to pass in compliance with his instructions i agreed with captain morris of the packet at new york for my passage and my stores were put on board when lord laudan arrived at philadelphia expressly as he told me to endeavour an accommodation between the governor and the assembly that his majesty's service might not be obstructed by their dissensions accordingly he desired the governor and myself to meet him that he might hear what was to be said on both sides we met and discussed the business in behalf of the assembly i urged all the various arguments that may be found in the public papers of that time which were of my writing and were printed with the minutes of the assembly and the governor pleaded his instructions the bond he had given to observe them and his ruin if he disobeyed yet seemed not unwilling to hazard himself if lord loudon would advise it this his lordship did not choose to do though i once thought i had nearly prevailed with him to do it but finally he rather chose to urge the compliance of the assembly and he entreated me to use my endeavours with them for that purpose declaring that he would spare none of the king's troops for the defence of our frontiers and that if we did not continue to provide for the defence ourselves they must remain exposed to the enemy i acquainted the house with what had been passed and presenting them with a set of resolutions i had drawn up declaring our rights and that we did not relinquish our claim to those rights but only suspended the exercise of them on this occasion through force against which we protested they at length agreed to drop that bill and frame another comfortable to the proprietary instructions this of course the governor passed and i was then at liberty to proceed on my voyage but in the meantime the packet had sailed with my sea stores which was some loss to me and my only recompense was his lordship's thanks for my service all the credit of obtaining the accommodation falling to his share he set out for new york before me and as the time for dispatching the packet boats was at his disposition and there were two then remaining there one of which he said was to sail very soon i requested to know the precise time that i might not miss her by any delay of mine his answer was i have given out that she is to sail on saturday next but i may let you know 
enter announce that if you are there by monday morning you will be in time but do not delay longer by some accidental hindrance at a ferry it was monday noon before i arrived and i was much afraid she might have sailed as the wind was fair but i was soon made easy by the information that she was still in the harbour and would not move till the next day one would imagine that i was now on the very point of departing for europe i thought so but i was not then so well acquainted with his lordship's character of which indecision was one of the strongest features i shall give some instances it was about the beginning of april that i came to new york and i think it was near the end of june before we sailed there were then two of the packet-boats which had been long in port but were delayed for the general's letters which were always to be ready to-morrow another packet arrived she too was detained and before we sailed a fourth was expected ours was the first to be dispatched as having been there the longest passengers were engaged in all and some extremely impatient to be gone and the merchants uneasy about their letters and the orders they had given for insurance it being wartime for fall goods but their anxiety availed nothing his lordship's letters were not ready and yet whoever waited on him found him always at his desk pen in hand and concluded that he must needs write abundantly going myself one morning to pay my respects i found in his antechamber one innes a messenger of philadelphia who had come from thence express with a packet from governor denny for the general he delivered to me some letters from my friends there which occasioned my inquiry when he was to return and where he lodged that i might send some letters by him he told me he was ordered to call to-morrow at nine for the general's answer to the governor and should set off immediately i put my letters into his hand that same day a fortnight after i met him again in the same place so you are soon returned innes returned no i am not gone yet how so i have called here by order every morning these two weeks past for his lordship's letter and it is not yet ready is it possible when he is so great a writer for i see him constantly at his escritoire yes says innes but he is like st george on the signs always on horseback and never rides on this observation of the messenger was it seems well founded for when in england i understood that mr pitt gave it as one reason for removing this general and sending generals amherst and wolfe that the minister never heard from him and could not know what he was doing Again, footnote william pitt first earl of chatham seventeen o eight to seventeen seventy eight a great english statesman and orator under his able administration england won canada from france he was a friend of america at the time of our revolution End of footnote. this daily expectation of sailing and all the three packets going down to sandy hook to join the fleet there the passengers thought it best to be on board lest by a sudden order the ship should sail and they be left behind there if i remember right we were about six weeks consuming our sea stores and obliged to procure more at length the fleet sailed the general and all his army on board bound to louisburg with the intent to besiege and take that fortress all the packet boats in company ordered to attend the general's ship ready to receive his dispatches when they should be ready we were out five days before we got a letter with leave to part and then our ship quitted the fleet and steered for england the other two packets he still detained carrying them with him to halifax 
where he stayed some time to exercise the men in sham attacks upon sham forts then altered his mind as to besieging Louisburg, and returned to new york with all his troops together with the two packets of above mentioned and all their passengers during his absence the french and savages had taken fort george on the frontier of that province and the savages had massacred many of the garrison after capitulation i saw afterwards in london captain bonnell who commanded one of those packets he told me that when he had been detained a month he acquainted his lordship that his ship was grown foul to a degree that must necessarily hinder her fast sailing a point of consequence for a packet-boat and requested an allowance of time to heave her down and clean her bottom he was asked how long that would require he answered three days the general replied if you can do it in one day i give leave otherwise not for you must certainly sail the day after to-morrow so he never obtained leave though detained afterwards from day to day during full three months i saw also in london one of bonnell's passengers who was so enraged against his lordship for deceiving and detaining him so long at new york and then carrying him to halifax and back again that he swore he would sue him for damages whether he did or not i have not heard as he represented the injury to his affairs it was very considerable on the whole i wondered much how such a man came to be entrusted with so important a business as the conduct of a great army but having since seen more of the great world and the means of obtaining and motives for giving places my wonder is diminished general shirley on whom the command of the army devolved upon the death of braddock would in my opinion if continued in place have made a much better campaign than that of loudon in seventeen fifty seven which was frivolous expensive and disgraceful to our nation beyond conception for though shirley was not a bred soldier he was sensible and sagacious in himself and attentive to good advice from others capable of forming judicious plans and quick and active in carrying them to execution loudon instead of defending the colonies with his great army left them totally exposed while he paraded idly at halifax by which means fort george was lost besides he deranged all our mercantile operations and distressed our trade by a long embargo on the exportation of provisions on pretence of keeping supplies from being obtained by the enemy but in reality for beating down their price in favour of the contractors in whose profits it was said perhaps from suspicion only he had a share and when at length the embargo was taken off by neglecting to send notice of it to charlestown the carolina fleet was detained near three months longer whereby their bottoms were so much damaged by the worm that a great part of them foundered in their passage home begin footnote this relation illustrates the corruption that characterized english public life in the eighteenth century it was gradually overcome in the early part of the next century End footnote. shirley was i believe sincerely glad of being relieved from so burdensome a charge as the conduct of an army must be to a man unacquainted with military business i was at the entertainment given by the city of new york to lord loden on his taking upon him the command surely though thereby superseded was present also there was a great company of officers citizens and strangers and some chairs having been borrowed in the neighbourhood there was one among them very low which fell to the lot of mr shirley perceiving it as i sat by him i said have they given you sir too low a seat 
No matter, says he, Mr. Franklin, I find a low seat the easiest. While I was, as aforementioned, detained at New York, I received all the accounts of my provisions, etc., that I had furnished to Braddock, some of which accounts could not sooner be obtained from the different persons I had employed to assist in the business. I presented them to Lord Loudon, desiring to be paid the balance. He caused them to be regularly examined by the proper officer, who, after comparing every article with its voucher, certified them to be right, and the balance due for which his lordship promised to give me an order on the paymaster. This was, however, put off from time to time, and though I called often for it by appointment, I did not get it. At length, just before my departure, he told me he had, on better consideration, concluded not to mix his accounts with those of his predecessor. And you, says he, when in England, have only to exhibit your accounts at the Treasury, and you will be paid immediately. I mentioned, but without effect, the great and unexpected expense I had been put to by being detained so long at New York as a reason for my desiring to be presently paid, and on my observing that it was not right I should be put to any further trouble or delay in obtaining the money I had advanced, as I charged no commission for my service. Sir, says he, you must not think of persuading us that you are no gainer. We understand better those affairs, and know that every one concerned in supplying the army finds means, in the doing it, to fill his own pockets. I assured him, that was not my case, and that I had not pocketed a farthing, but he appeared clearly not to believe me. And, indeed, I have since learnt that immense fortunes are often made in such employments. As to my balance, I am not paid it to this day, of which more hereafter. Our captain of the packet had boasted much before we sailed of the swiftness of his ship. Unfortunately, when we came to the sea, she proved the dullest of ninety-six sail, to his no small mortifications. After many conjectures respecting the cause, when we were near another ship almost as dull as ours, which, however, gained upon us, the captain ordered all hands to come off and stand as near the ensign staff as possible. We were, passengers included, about forty persons. While we stood there the ship mended her pace, and soon left her neighbor far beyond, which proved clearly that our captain suspected that she was loaded too much by the head. The casks of water, it seemed, had been all placed forward. These were therefore ordered to be moved further aft, on which the ship recovered her character and proved the best sailor in the fleet. The captain said he had once gone at the rate of thirteen knots, which is accounted thirteen miles per hour. We had on board as a passenger Captain Kennedy of the Navy, who contended that it was impossible, and that no ship ever sailed so fast, and that there must have been some error in the division of the log-line, or some mistake in heaving the log. A wager ensued between the two captains to be decided when there should be sufficient wind. Kennedy thereupon examined rigorously the log-line, and being satisfied with it, he determined to throw the log himself. Accordingly, some days after, when the wind blew very fair and fresh, and the captain of the packet Ludwig said he believed she then went at the rate of thirteen knots, Kennedy made the experiment, and owed his wager lost. Again footnote. A log line is a piece of wood shaped and weighted so as to keep it stable when in the water. To this is attached a line knotted at regular distances. By these devices it is possible to tell the speed of a ship. End footnote. The above fact I give 
for the sake of the following observation it has been remarked as an imperfection in the art of shipbuilding that it can never be known till she is tried whether a new ship will or will not be a good sailor for that the model of a good sailing ship has been exactly followed in a new one which has proved on the contrary remarkably dull i apprehend that this may partly be occasioned by the different opinions of seamen respecting the modes of lading rigging and sailing of a ship each has his system and the same vessel laden by the judgment and orders of one captain shall sail better or worse than when by the orders of another besides it scarce ever happens that a ship is formed fitted for the sea and sailed by the same person one man builds the hull another rigs her third lades and sails her no one of these has the advantage of knowing all the ideas and experience of the others and therefore cannot draw just conclusions from a combination of the whole even in the simple operation of sailing when at sea i have often observed different judgments in the officers who commanded the successive watches the wind being the same one would have the sails trimmed sharper or flatter than another so that they seemed to have no certain rule to govern by yet i think a set of experiments might be instituted first to determine the most proper form of the hull for swift sailing the best dimensions and properest place for the masts then the form and quantity of sails and their position as the wind may be and lastly the disposition of the lading this is an age of experiments and i think a set of accurately made and combined would be of great use i am persuaded therefore that ere long some ingenious philosopher will undertake it to whom i wish success we were several times chased in our passage but outsailed everything and in thirty days had soundings we had a good observation and the captain judged himself so near to our port falmouth that if we made a good run in the night we might be off the mouth of that harbour in the morning and by running in that night might escape the notice of the enemy's privateers who often cruised near the entrance of the channel accordingly all the sail was set and that we could possibly make and the wind being very fresh and fair we went right before it and made great way the captain after his observation shaped his course as he thought so as to pass wide of the Chile isles but it seems there is sometimes a strong indraft setting up st george's channel which deceives seamen and caused the loss of sir cloudersley shovel's squadron this indraft was probably the cause of what happened to us we had a watchman placed on the bow to whom they often called look well out before thee and he as often answered ay ay but perhaps had his eyes shut and was half asleep at the time they sometimes answering as is said mechanically for he did not see a light just before us which had been hid by the stubbing sails from the man at the helm and from the rest of the watch but by an accidental yaw of the ship was discovered and occasioned a great alarm we being very near it the light appearing to me as big as a cartwheel it was midnight and our captain fast asleep but captain kennedy jumped upon deck and seeing the danger ordered the ship to wear round all sails standing an operation dangerous to the masts but it carried us clear and we escaped shipwreck for we were running right upon the rocks on which the lighthouse was erected thus deliverance impressed me strongly with the utility of lighthouses 
and made me resolve to encourage the building more of them in america if i should live to return there in the morning it was found by the soundings etc that we were near our port but a thick fog hid the land from our sight about nine o'clock the fog began to rise and seemed to be lifted up from the water like a curtain at a playhouse discovering underneath the town of falmouth the vessels in its harbour and the fields that surrounded it there was a most pleasing spectacle to those who had been so long without any other prospects than the uniform view of a vacant ocean and it gave us the more pleasure as we were now free from the anxieties which the state of war occasioned i set out immediately with my son for london and we only stopped a little by the way to view stonehenge on salisbury plain and lord pembroke's house and the gardens with his very curious antiques at wilton we arrived in london the twenty seventh of july seventeen fifty seven as soon as i was settled in a lodging mr charles had provided for me i went to visit dr fothergill to whom i was strongly recommended and whose counsel respecting my proceedings i was advised to obtain he was against an immediate complaint to government and thought the proprietaries should first be personally applied to who might possibly be induced by the interposition and persuasion of some private friends to accommodate matters amicably i then waited on my old friend and correspondent mr peter collinson who told me that john halsbury the great virginia merchant had requested to be informed when i should arrive that he might carry me to lord granville's who was then president of the council and wished to see me as soon as possible i agreed to go with him the next morning accordingly mr hansbury called for me and took me in his carriage to the nobleman's who received me with great civility and after some questions respecting the present state of affairs in america and discourse thereupon he said to me you americans have wrong ideas of the nature of your constitution you contend that the king's instructions to his governors are not laws and think yourselves at liberty to regard or disregard them at your own discretion but those instructions are not like the pocket instructions given to a minister going abroad for regulating his conduct in some trifling point of ceremony they are first drawn up by judges learned in the laws they are considered debated and perhaps amended in council after which they are signed by the king they are then so far as they relate to you the law of the land for the king is the legislator of the colonies i told his lordship that this was new doctrine to me i had always understood from our charters that our laws were to be made by our assemblies to present it indeed to the king for his royal assent but being once given the king could not repeal or alter them and as the assemblies could not make permanent laws without his assent so neither could he make a law for them without theirs he assured me i was totally mistaken i did not think so however and his lordship's conversation having a little alarmed me as to what might be the sentiments of the court concerning us i wrote it down as soon as i returned to my lodgings i recollected that about twenty years before a clause in a bill brought into parliament by the ministry had proposed to make the king's instructions laws in the colonies but the clause was thrown out by the commons for which we adored them as our friends and friends of liberty till by their conduct towards us in seventeen sixty five it seemed that they had refused that point of sovereignty to the king only that they might reserve it for themselves 
begin footnote this whole passage shows how hopelessly divergent were the english and american views on the relations between the mother country and her colonies grenville here made clear that the americans were to have no voice in making or amending their laws parliament and the king were to have absolute power over the colonies no wonder franklin was alarmed by this new doctrine with his keen insight into human nature and his consequent knowledge of american character he foresaw the inevitable result of such an attitude on the part of england his conversation with granville makes these last pages of the autobiography one of his most important parts after some days dr fothergill having spoken to the proprietaries they agreed to a meeting with me at mr t penn's house in spring garden the conversation at first consisted of mutual declarations of disposition to reasonable accommodations but i supposed each party had his own ideas what should be meant by reasonable we then went into consideration of our several points of complaint which i enumerated the proprietaries justified their conduct as well as they could and i the assemblies we now appeared very wide and in so far from each other in our opinions as to discourage all hope of agreement however it was concluded that i should give them the heads of our complaints in writing and they promised then to consider them i did soon after but they put the paper into the hands of their solicitor ferdinand john paris who managed for them all their law business in their great suit with the neighbouring proprietary of maryland lord baltimore which had subsisted seventy years and wrote for them all their papers and messages in their dispute with the assembly he was a proud angry man and as i had occasionally in answers of the assembly treated his papers with some severity they being really weak in point of argument and haughty in expression he had conceived a mortal enmity to me which discovering itself whenever we met i declined the proprietary's proposal that he and i should discuss the heads of complaint between our two selves and refused treating with any one but them they then by his advice put the paper into the hands of the attorney and solicitor-general for their opinion and counsel upon it where it lay unanswered a year wanting eight days during which time i made frequent demands of an answer from the proprietaries but without obtaining any other than that they had not yet received the opinion of the attorney and solicitor-general what it was when they received it i never learnt for they did not communicate it to me but sent a long message to the assembly drawn and signed by paris reciting my paper complaining of its want of formality as a rudeness on my part and giving a flimsy justification of their conduct adding that they should be willing to accommodate matters if the assembly would send out some person of candour to treat with them for that purpose intimating whereby that i was not such want of formality or rudeness was probably my not having addressed the papers to them with the assumed titles of true and absolute proprietaries of the province of pennsylvania which i omitted this not thinking it necessary in a paper the intention of which was only to reduce to a certainty by writing what in conversation i had delivered viva vosa but during this delay the assembly having prevailed with governor denny to pass an act taxing the proprietary estate in common with the estates of the people which was the grand point in dispute they omitted answering the message 
when this act however came over the proprietaries counselled by paris determined to oppose its receiving the royal assent accordingly they petitioned the king in council and a hearing was appointed in which two lawyers were employed by them against the act and two by me in support of it they alleged that the act was intended to load the proprietary estate in order to spare those of the people and that if it were suffered to continue in force and the proprietaries who were in odium with the people left to their mercy in proporting the taxes they would inevitably be ruined we replied that the act had no such intention and would have no such effect that the assessors were honest and discreet men under an oath to assess fairly and equitably and that any advantage each of them might expect in lessening his own tax by augmenting that of the proprietaries was too trifling to induce them to perjure themselves this is the purport of what i remember as urged by both sides except that we insisted strongly on the mischievous consequences that must attend a repeal for that the money one hundred thousand pounds being printed and given to the king's use expended in his service and now spread among the people the repeal would strike it dead in their hands to the ruin of many and the total discouragement of future grants and the selfishness of the proprietaries in soliciting such a general catastrophe merely from a groundless fear of their estate being taxed too highly was insisted upon in the strongest terms on this lord mansfield one of the council rose and beckoning me took me into the clerk's chamber while the lawyers were pleading and asked me if i was really of the opinion that no injury would be done the proprietary estate in the execution of the act i said certainly then says he you can have little objection to enter into an engagement to assure that point i answered none at all he then called in paris and after some discourse his lordship's proposition was accepted on both sides a paper to the purpose was drawn up by the clerk of the council which i signed with mr charles who was also an agent of the province for their ordinary affairs when lord mansfield returned to the council chamber where finally the law was allowed to pass some changes were however recommended and we also engaged they should be made by a subsequent law but the assembly did not think them necessary for one year's tax having been levied by the act before the order of the council arrived they appointed a committee to examine the proceedings of the assessors and on this committee they put several particular friends of the proprietaries after a full inquiry they unanimously signed a report that they found the tax had been assessed with perfect equity the assembly looked into my entering into the first part of the engagement as an essential service to the province since it secured the credit of the paper money then spread over all the country they gave me their thanks in form when i returned but the proprietaries were enraged at governor denny for having passed the act and turned him out with threats of suing him for breach of instructions which he had given bond to observe he however having done it at the insistence of the general and for his majesty's service and having some powerful interest at court despised the threats and they were never put in execution unfinished end of chapter nineteen the autobiography of benjamin franklin appendix this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, edited by Frank Woodward Pine. Appendix Electrical Kite To Peter Colinson, Philadelphia, October 19, 1752. Sir, as frequent mention is made in public papers from Europe of the success of the Philadelphia experiment for drawing the electric fire from clouds by means of pointed rods of iron erected on high buildings, etc., it may be agreeable to the curious to be informed that the same experiment has succeeded in Philadelphia, though made in a different and more easy manner, which is as follows. Make a small cross of two light strips of cedar, the arms so long as to reach to the four corners of a large, thin, silk handkerchief, then extended. Tie the corners of the handkerchief to the extremities of the cross, so you have the body of a kite, which being properly accommodated with a tail, loop, and string, will rise in the air, like those made of paper, but this being of silk is fitter to bear the wet and wind of a thunder-gust without tearing. To the top of the upright stick of the cross is to be fixed a very sharp-pointed wire, rising a foot or more above the wood. To the end of the twine, next the hand, is to be tied a silk ribbon, and where the silk and twine join, a key may be fastened. This kite is to be raised when a thunder-gust appears to be coming on and the person who holds the string must stand within a door or window or under some cover so that the silk ribbon may not be wet and care must be taken that the twine does not touch the frame of the door or window as soon as any of the thunderclouds come over the kite the pointed wire will draw the electric fire from them and the kite with all the twine will be electrified and the loose filaments of the twine will stand out every way and be attracted by an approaching finger and when the rain has wet the kite and twine so that it can conduct electric fire freely you will find it streams out plentifully from the key on the approach of your knuckle as this key the file may be charged and from electric fire thus obtained spirits may be kindled and all the electric experiments be performed which are usually done by the help of a rubbed glass globe or tube, and thereby the sameness of the electric matter with which that of lightning completely demonstrated. B. Franklin The shade of him who counsel can bestow, still pleased to teach, and yet not proud to know, unbiased or by favour or by spite, nor dully prepossessed nor blindly right, who learned well-bred, and though well-bred, sincere, modestly bold, and humanely severe, who to a friend his faults can sweetly show, and gladly praise the merit of a foe. Here, there, he sits, his cheerful aid to lend, a firm, unshaken, uncorrupted friend, averse alike to flatter or offend. He rarely warm in censure or in praise. Good nature, wit, and judgment round him wait, and thus he sits enthroned in classic state. To failings mild but zealous for desert, the clearest head and sincerest heart, few men deserve our passion either ways. 
from Father Abraham's speech, 1760. End of Electrical Kite The Way to Wealth From Father Abraham's speech, forming the preface to Poor Richard's Almanac for 1758. It would be thought a hard government that should tax its people one-tenth part of their time to be employed in its service, but idleness taxes many of us much more, if we reckoned all that is spent in absolute sloth, or doing of nothing, with that which is spent in the employments or amusements that amount to nothing. Sloth, by bringing on disease, absolutely shortens life. Sloth, like rust, consumes faster than labor wears, while the used key is always bright, as poor Richard says. But dost thou love life? Then do not squander time, for that's the stuff life is made of, as poor Richard says. How much more than is necessary do we spend in sleep, forgetting that the sleeping fox catches no poultry, and that there will be sleeping enough in the grave, as poor Richard says. If time be of all things, the most precious wasting time must be, as poor Richard says, the greatest fragility, since, as he elsewhere tells us, lost time is never found again, and what we call time enough always proves little enough. Let us then up and be doing, and doing to the purpose, so by diligence shall we do more with less perplexity. Sloth makes all things difficult, but industry all easy, as poor Richard says, and he that riseth late must trod all day, and shall scarce overtake his business at night, while laziness travels so slowly that poverty soon overtakes it, as we read in poor Richard, who adds, Drive thy business, let not that drive thee, and early to bed and early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Industry need not wish, and he that lives upon hope will die fasting. There's no gains without pains. He that hath a trade hath an estate, and he that hath a calling hath an office of profit and honour. But then the trade must be worked, and the calling well formed, for neither the estate nor the office will enable us to pay our taxes. What though you have found no treasure, nor has any such relation left you a legacy? Diligence is the mother of good luck, as poor Richard says, and God gives all things to industry. One to-day is worth two to-morrow, and farther. Have you something to do to-morrow, do it to-day. If you were a servant, you would not be ashamed that a good master should catch you idle? Are you, then, your own master? Be ashamed to catch yourself idle. Stick to it steadily, and you will see great effects for constant dropping wears away stones, and by diligence and patience the mouse ate into the cable, and little strokes fell great oaks. Methinks I hear some of you say, Must a man afford himself no leisure? I will tell thee, my friend, what poor Richard says. Employ thy time well, if thou meanest to gain leisure, and since thou art not sure of a minute, throw not away an hour. 
leisure is time for doing something useful this leisure the diligent man will obtain but the lazy man never so that as poor richard says a life of leisure and a life of laziness are two things keep thy shop and thy shop will keep thee and again if you would have your business done go if not send if you would have a faithful servant and one you like serve yourself a little neglect may breed great mischief adding for want of a nail the shoe was lost for want of a shoe the horse was lost and for want of a horse the rider was lost being overtaken and slain by the enemy all for the want of care about a horseshoe nail so much for industry my friends and attention to one's own business but to these we must add frugality what maintains one vice would bring up two children you may think perhaps that a little tea or a little punch now and then diet a little more costly clothes a little finer and a little entertainment now and then can be no great matter but remember what poor richard says many a little makes a mickle beware of little expenses a little leak will sink a great ship and again who dainties love shall beggars prove and moreover fools make feasts and wise men eat them but what thou hast no need of and ere long thou shalt sell thy necessaries if you would know the value of money go and try to borrow some for he that goes a-borrowing goes a-sorrowing the second vice is lying the first is running in debt lying rides upon debt's back poverty often deprives a man of all spirit and virtue tis hard for an empty bag to stand upright and now to conclude experience keeps a dear school but fools will learn in no other and scare in that for it is true we may give advice but we cannot give conduct as poor richard says however remember this they that won't be counselled can't be helped as poor richard says and farther that if you will not hear reason she'll surely wrap your knuckles the whistle to madame brillian passe november tenth seventeen seventy nine i am charmed with your description of paradise and with your plan of living there and i approve much of your conclusion that in the meantime we should draw all the good we can from this world in my opinion we might all draw more good from it than we do and suffer less evil if we should take care not to give too much for whistles for to me it seems that most of the unhappy people we meet with are come to by neglect of that caution you ask what i mean you love stories and will excuse my telling one of myself when i was a child of seven years old my friends on a holiday filled my pockets with coppers i went directly to a shop where they sold toys for children and being charmed with the sound of a whistle that i met by the way in the hands of another boy i voluntarily offered and gave all my money for one i then came home and went whistling all over the house much pleased with my whistle but disturbing all the family my brothers and sisters and cousins understanding the bargain i had made told me i had given four times as much for it as it was worth put me in mind of what good things i might have bought with the rest of the money and laughed at me so much for my folly that i cried with vexation and the reflection gave me more chagrin than the whistle gave me pleasure 
this however was afterwards of use to me the impression continuing on my mind so that often when i was tempted to buy some unnecessary thing i said to myself don't give too much for the whistle and i saved my money as i grew up came into the world and observed the actions of men i thought i met with many very many who gave too much for the whistle when i saw one too ambitious for court favours sacrificing his time and attendance on levies his repose his liberty his virtue and perhaps his friends to attain it i have said to myself this man gives too much for his whistle when i saw another fond of popularity constantly employing himself in political bustles neglecting his own affairs and ruining them by neglect he pays indeed said i too much for his whistle if i knew a miser who gave up every kind of comfortable living all the pleasure of doing good to others all the esteem of his fellow-citizens and the joys of benevolent friendship for the sake of accumulating wealth poor man said i you pay too much for your whistle when i met with a man of pleasure sacrificing every laudable improvement of the mind or of his fortune to mere corporal sensations and ruining his health in the pursuit mistaken man said i you are providing pain for yourself instead of pleasure you give too much for your whistle if i see one fond of appearance or fine clothes fine houses fine furniture fine equipages all above his fortune for which he contracts debts and ends his career in a prison alas say i he paid dear very dear for his whistle when i see a beautiful sweet-tempered girl married to an ill-natured brute of a husband what a pity say i that she should pay so much for a whistle in short i conceive that the great part of the miseries of mankind are brought upon them by the false estimates they have made of the value of things and by their giving too much for their whistles yet i ought to have charity for these unhappy people when i consider that with all this wisdom of which i am boasting there are certain things in the world so tempting for example the apples of king john which happily are not to be bought for they were put to sale by auction i might very easily be led to ruin myself in the purchase and find that i had once more given too much for the whistle adieu my dear friend and believe me ever yours very sincerely with unalterable affection b franklin a letter to samuel mather passe may twelfth seventeen eighty four reverend sir it is now more than sixty years since i left boston but i remember well both your father and grandfather having heard them both in the pulpit and seen them in their houses the last time i saw your father it was the beginning of seventeen twenty four when i visited him after my first trip to pennsylvania he received me in his library and on taking leave showed me a shorter way out of the house through a narrow passage which was crossed by a beam overhead we were still talking as i withdrew he accompanied me behind and i turned partly towards him when he said hastily stoop stoop i did not understand him till i felt my head hit against the beam he was a man that never missed any occasion of giving instruction and upon this he said to me you are young and have the world before you stoop as you go through it and you will miss many hard thumps this advice thus beat into my head has frequently been of use to me and i often think of it when i see pride mortified and misfortunes brought upon people by their carrying their heads too high b franklin the end
End of Appendix End of The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.